Two and a Half Admins, episode 41. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a blog post to plug, Alan. Building customized FreeBSD images. Yes, uh, there's another post on our, our website by Mitchell Horn, and it talks about how you can use the build system of FreeBSD to build your own customized version of it. So you can disable certain features and make a, a smaller version of it to, to fit on like a router or something, or whatever you might want to do with FreeBSD. You don't need a special toolkit like with Linux where you have like Yocto or roll your own Linux or whatever it's called. Uh, FreeBSD makes it easy to just turn on and off the features you want and, and build a custom FreeBSD. All right, well, link to that in the show notes then. Let's do some feedback first. And the first one is from Plum Chi, I think. And it's for Alan Barracuda. It seems to do Office 365 SharePoint backup, and it's a per-user license. You were asking about that, I think, on the... Yes, I was looking for something to back up our company SharePoint because it's got too much stuff in it that we really need to have backed up better. Well, there you go. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for anyone else who wants to know about that. Thanks for the recommendation. Okay, Mike says, I just listened to episode 38 and wanted to write in because I think Jim mischaracterized Synology's ButterFS implementation. Let me first state that I'm a huge fan of ButterFS. Okay, so we can believe nothing you say. <laughs> <laughs> calm down, calm down. I use it on my personal NAS, and I also have been supporting its use at my employer, where we have been using it for about five years on hundreds of employee workstations to allow our software developers to make fast clones of several hundred gigabyte repositories. This is usually single disk mode on an SSD or RAID 0 across two drives with inline compression enabled. It's proven very reliable, and we've only had a handful of instances of actual data loss, usually due to hardware failure, not ButterFS itself. I think Synology's ButterFS implementation actually uses some questionably proprietary bits added onto the kernel's ButterFS implementation. They do, in fact, have a mechanism that allows them to use ButterFS integrity checksums to detect bit rot, and they are able to recover the data using the MD RAID layer. This is not something, as far as I know, that the Linux kernel supports out of the box, other than, as he said, using DM integrity instead of ButterFS's checksums. Take a look at this linked article. It is light on the implementation details, but I think that's because Synology is also light on the implementation details. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'm a little bit disappointed by Synology's lack of transparency with how exactly they've implemented checksumming and failure recovery, but it does seem like they have a solid ButterFS implementation, which provides all the usability features users want, like snapshotting, compression, and data integrity, while also avoiding the less stable ButterFS RAID 5 feature. And he says, uh, I do enjoy the show, even though I'm not on the ZFS hype train. All of that sounds fine, but it mostly sounds like people spending a lot of effort to avoid the parts of ButterFS that don't work. <laughs> I took a look at that article and it's, you know, it, it's basically somebody I've never heard of poking really hard at a Synology device and kind of trying to figure out how it works beneath the hood. I haven't had enough time to figure out whether I entirely believe the conclusions that he drew. But regardless, you know, if we, if we just assume that what, you know, Mike is saying is correct and Synology is actually doing corruption detection using bit rot checksums, and then repair using DM integrity, which they would have to since, you know, Butter only has one disk to work with. That is certainly an improvement. You know, one of the big problems with DM integrity itself is that it can only work by using the parity layer. And there's lots of ways that you can corrupt your data that won't invalidate parity. 
So if you change an H to an I on disk one and you change an I to an H on disk two in one stripe, the parity still matches for the stripe because you added here and you took away there and the sum comes up. The The parity on a RAID stripe is not a strong integrity mechanism. It's just intended for error repair. So if you're instead using the much stronger cryptographic checksum that, you know, Butter builds in to detect your issues and then repairing it by, you know, basically just rebuilding your stripe every possible way, leaving a disk out until it works, that is certainly an improvement. It still strikes me as kind of a hinky Rube Goldberg way to do things that's working around the fact that Butter's just not reliable enough to handle those disks in the first place. And if it was, then Synology and Netgear and everybody else building NASs that include Butter would absolutely have just done it that way rather than have all these weird conflicting layers that they don't add anything unless <laughs> you you realize that what they're actually adding is, you know, the whole system not catching on fire for, you know, 5% of their users a year, maybe? <laughs> it definitely seems like ButterFS was written to have the volume manager built in, except for they apparently couldn't get it up to the quality of MDADM. Because ButterFS has the checksum, it should be doing that reconstruction, not asking DM Integrity to go talk to MDADM and try to find the chunks and do the permutations. Yeah. It's just seems to be a lot of extra layers and a lot of extra work in order to get some of the features of ZFS and have it as ButterFS. If file cloning is that useful, I suppose that's the one feature ButterFS has. I don't think reflink equals always is turned on on those Synology devices, though. I, I could be wrong, but... Well, no, I, I was thinking more in the case he was talking about the, the workstations uh, where they're ah, gotcha. fast cloning the repo. But what kind of repo where you would need multiple copies of it like that? where you would need to like clone a whole hundred gigs and have a dip. Like usually the point of a repo is to avoid that. Or you use something like get work trees. But I guess if your repo is a hundred gigabytes, maybe even get work trees just doesn't make sense. I'm sure it makes sense to Mike. I'm sure he could explain it to us if we brought him on air, but I think we'll just boil it down to he's got a reason that he wants to be able to very rapidly clone several hundred gigabytes of data. And we don't actually even know from Mike's email whether he's talking about like cloning it locally, like a CP reflink equals always kind of thing, or whether he's just talking about, you know, using asynchronous incremental replication from a central server. How is the replication in ButterFS? It works. It's not great. I actually tested that pretty thoroughly again recently. Uh, it has much heavier performance implication on the underlying storage, you know, as either a source or a target than ZFS replication does. It also still, unfortunately, all these years later has the nasty habit. I shouldn't say habit. It's what it does every single time. If you interrupt a ButterFS replication mid-flight, you know, just control C out of it or crash a process, uh, yank a network cord, whatever, you end up with half a snapshot on the target system. You can change directory into it. You can look at files in it. You can read files in it if they're there. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't resume that replication. It's not like that half a snapshot being there means you can start from halfway through the next time. No, it's just garbage. And the only way that you can tell, uh, it used to be the only way I knew how to tell was literally just run a find all throughout the snapshot until you hit a hard IO error. And that tells you, okay, this isn't the whole snapshot. You find that out because your further incremental replication attempts after that, based on that snapshot, will fail because the whole snapshot's there. So then you start realizing, okay, I've got a broken snapshot somewhere. I need to go in and kill it. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. I did discover there is a very obscure ButterFS property for subvolumes 
that it gets set when you start a replication and doesn't get unset until the replication is complete. So you can check this property on all your butter subvolumes, some of which are snapshots, some of which are not. That's another neat, and I'm doing air quotes thing about uh, butter snapshots is they're, ugh, it's a mess. Uh, but anyway, you can check this property and determine that you've got half a snapshot and then you can destroy it. But this is all in very sharp contrast to uh, not just ZFS, but literally anything, man. Who else does that? Well, like even, yes, if you're just doing files, like if you look at the way rsync does it, name the snapshot while it's incomplete, starting with a period or something to make it obvious that it's not the real thing. Yeah. And then rename it to the correct name when you're done. Kind of like the property they already have, but make it show up in the list with starting with a weird character or something so that it's obvious that it's not the whole snapshot or not the real thing. Yep. And, and you know, butter replication is not something they implemented last week. Mm-hmm. I was using butter replication, God help me, in production to my great chagrin, like, you know, five years ago. And the problems that it had then, it continues to have now. All right. All right. All right. Mike, what did you expect, man? Is all I can say writing in about that. I'm glad ButterFS works for you. Yeah. Don't ask me for help. <laughs> we love you, Mike, but your file system sucks. Sorry. All right. Josh says, I want to make a suggestion about how to use the subreddit. You mentioned ways to get in touch with you guys, but I feel like having a place where we can get in touch with each other. Maybe reply directly to someone's email that gets read over the air. Just a thought. I think that's a great idea. Start doing it. You don't need us for that. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, don't send your questions you want us to answer there. But if you hear a question on the show and you have a better answer than we did or just extra information, or you just want to ask a question to a bunch of other sysadmins, not us specifically. Yeah. Exactly. Build the community. Yeah, but you've posted over there, Jim. I've checked it a couple of times and you've made it clear that me and Alan don't really go over there very often. I'm bad at Reddit. Yeah, same. I, I just hate Reddit generally. Um, show at 2.5admins.com. Email is definitely the way. If you have questions that you want on air or feedback that you want to be on air, definitely do it that way. But yeah, if you want to form a community over there, knock yourselves out and Jim will be there occasionally and... Once in a blue moon, maybe me and Alan will show up. But otherwise, yeah, if you're all into Reddit, then yeah, have at it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our late night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, get your $100 credit, and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first-class, always-available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Let's do some free consulting then. As I said, show at 2.5admins.com is the way to send your questions in for Jim and Alan. And thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to support us, then go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So, Lillis wrote to us, I recently heard the term AAA, Authentication, Authorization and Accounting, 
and it seems to be a process for keeping track of user accounts in computer networks. I currently use Keycloak for authentication and authorization in a front-end and back-end app, but could AAA protocols like Diameter or Radius be used instead to add the accounting part? If not, when should we use them? I'm not actually familiar with the the blanket term AAA, but uh, I am familiar with Radius. Radius is usually used in uh, you know enterprise Wi-Fi environments as a replacement for WPA authentication. Uh, Radius is how uh, big college campuses or enterprise businesses they'll assign you your own individual username and password to get onto the Wi-Fi rather than just you know quote the Wi-Fi password unquote. You can use Radius for just about anything that you want to. But uh, it's kind of like using open source accounting programs. You know, you don't just install it and use it. You have to develop a solution around it is kind of what it boils down to, which may or may not be attractive to you. But usually there's there's going to be more involved than just radius. Like, you know, radius is going to be the protocol that actually handles the mechanics of it. But you're usually storing credentials in an LDAP server. So uh, lightweight directory access protocol is going to be key to anything that you're developing for this. I'm not familiar with Keycloak, but I have a sneaking suspicion we're basically describing what's inside it already. So the question is whether you want to continue using Keycloak or whether you want to roll your own solution, not quite from scratch, because, you know, obviously starting out with Radius and LDAP, there's a lot of code that you're not writing, but there's a lot left that you're going to need to write. Yeah, like in general, the point of AAA is confirming that the person is who they said they are, so the password part. Authorization is what they're allowed to do, and accounting is keeping track of who did what to whom and when. Uh, so if Keycloak has logging, it's already doing the accounting part. Now, in the Radius case, it can be a little different because Radius was designed back in the dial-up days when you might have actually had a limit on how many hours you could be logged in, and the accounting could have actually meant, you know, you're only allowed to use this many hours, or we're going to bill you for the number of hours, and so on. But in general, the third day is mostly just about keeping logs. So if Keycloak keeps logs, then it's just another option in the solution. It sounds like you've already covered all three parts of it. And if you don't have logs, then obviously you want to get some logs. Okay, so Pear, I think that's how you say it, says, I have two Linux laptops that I need to back up the home directory in case of them being stolen. If needs be, I would connect them to my home Ethernet every evening. What's the best solution for this? P.S. One of the laptops is a netbook, so it can't really run a graphical web browser. So I've found that Lynx is still really useful. Well, so if one of the laptops is a netbook that's so lightweight, you're like, ah, I can't really run a real web browser. I got to stick to Lynx. That's going to put Allen's and my first suggestion right out the window, which, you know, would have been to suggest ZFS. But that's going to be also more heavyweight than you really want to run in that environment. Can you do it? Yes. Should you? No, not really. So that's going to bring you back to, uh, since you said Linux laptops, rsync-based solutions. You can either just run rsync directly from the command line. The string of letters that I remember is harvz. <laughs> so if you did like rsync-harvz-progress-delete source and then target, it will just update you know the one from the other. And that works really well over the network. Not as well as ZFS replication, but quite well indeed compared to just about anything else. The one caveat with that solution is that you end up with one copy of your laptop on the server. Yes, which is where I was going with that. If you do just a raw rsync, you're only going to have one copy. And if it goes bad on the laptop, you're going to update it bad on the server and it's all going to be gone. So uh, the better solution is to use an rsync 
based tool. And for that one, my personal recommendation is our snapshot. As many, many, many of our listeners have pointed out to us, our clone is a thing. It's out there. I have nothing bad to say about it. I'm just not specifically familiar with it. You can use our snapshot to uh, orchestrate your backups. You can initiate them manually, but uh, it will go ahead and take care of not only the rsync phase, but also making hard link trees, which if you're not familiar with the concept of hard link trees, you just make a new directory structure, just like the directory structure for all your data. And then the individual files, you make a hard link of each one. So that means you've got more than one inode for each individual file, but you don't copy the whole file. So for files that have not changed between day zero of your backup regime and day one of your backup regime, you're just making a hard link that doesn't take up any extra actual space. So if it was a thousand one gig files, that's a terabyte worth of data. It will still just be a terabyte worth of data the second day if you haven't changed anything, despite there being two apparent copies on the target. Yeah, and that'll basically give you a directory for each day that you did a backup, and inside of it will be the contents. But the files that didn't change, you won't end up with multiple copies of, and it will save space that way. The other neat thing about that is you can do those as a pull backups. So you run the backups on your desktop machine or server or whatever that you're backing up to, and you have it go out to the laptop. So you just plug the laptops into the network first, make sure they show up on a predictable IP address, and you can run a single R snapshot job on you know your server that's doing the backup to reach out to both laptops and handle them both all at once, which makes things a little easier. So you'd have one single uh, R snapshot config file, and uh, that lives in uh, et cetera, rsnapshot.conf. And you would literally just say R snapshot daily when you've plugged in your laptops. Wait for the job to complete, then you can unplug your laptops, you're done. Right. And the nice thing about that is it means your laptop doesn't have some passwordless key that allows it to log into your backup server. So if the laptop does get stolen, it's not carrying around a key that lets you have access to the backups, only the other way around. Okay, Tim says, currently I'm running XCPNG on three hosts with local ZFS storage. VMs are FreeBSD and Windows Server. Would like to move the hosts to FreeBSD because the ZFS support on FreeBSD is better than CentOS. Which hypervisor do you guys recommend on FreeBSD, Zen or Beehive? Well, you're already using Zen, so there's some advantage to continuing to use Zen. And it depends on what features you're expecting. Zen has some better support for suspend, resume, and migration. Like Beehive has experimental support for the suspend and resume and a pause migration, where you would actually basically do something like a ZFS send of the memory of the Beehive to a file and then copy it to another machine and resume it, but it's not quick like it would be in, in VMware. So if you already have all the tooling set up for Zen, there might be some advantage to Zen, but Beehive works is, is quite good now, although maybe the tooling isn't quite as there. And now I'm going to make Alan very unhappy and suggest that if you're just moving to FreeBSD for better ZFS support, better support than CentOS, sure. Better support than Ubuntu, nope. So if all you want is just, you know, better ZFS support where you're not worried about rebooting your machine and your pool doesn't automatically import, which is the big problem you have, you know, under CentOS, uh, that's not going to be an issue on Ubuntu because you're going to be running ZFS on canonical kernels directly out of canonical repositories. Everything just works. And if you do that, you'll be on potentially a more familiar platform because obviously, you know, that's Linux and server is, uh, is also Linux. But Equally importantly, at least from my perspective, that means you have access to KVM for your hypervisor, which is absolutely outstanding for um, 
guests on on all platforms, specifically including Windows Server. Yeah, the learning curve surely has got to be way less going from a Red Hat system to Ubuntu than going to FreeBSD, which is just totally different with package management and all the rest of it. You know what, though? Actually, I have to go back on that for a second because I just looked at uh, Tim's question again, and he said his VMs are FreeBSD and Windows Server. So I may be really underselling his degree of familiarity with FreeBSD, in which case, yes, he should absolutely move to Alan's favorite platform. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Uh, Beehive has good support for Windows, uh, although you can get better performance if you use the Verdio drivers, uh, and Windows doesn't include those by default, uh, but you can shoehorn them in there. But there we do have the like the E1000 emulation and the NVMe emulation now so that you don't have to do that. They can work out of the box. For anyone who does need Vertio drivers, please let me save you uh, some severe pulling out your hair in frustration. You will need signed Windows drivers to get them to actually install on modern Windows operating systems, yes. and those can be difficult to find. The unsigned drivers are everywhere. The key here is that to find the signed drivers, you want to go to fedorapeople.org. Now, you don't need to look around on the site. If you just put in Fedora People Vertio, you will immediately get the right place as a result in your Google search. That's how I go to them and I download them all the freaking time. But if you don't remember the Fedora people part, you're almost certainly going to find uh, links to the development version of the drivers, which are unsigned and will not load on a standard Windows operating system. So yeah, if you're really used to the Zen tooling, the Zen version, Zen on FreeBSD might be better, but Beehive has come a long way. It's, it's good to run FreeBSD and Windows rock solid now. So, What do you personally use, Beehive? Beehive, yeah. Well, because my, well, almost all my guests are FreeBSD and uh, I can do really useful development stuff like boot with an NFS as the root file system so it loads the kernel out of a directory and boots the VM. And when I crash it, because I'm doing development, I can just make install to a directory on my host machine and then the VM boots up and gets the changes. And it's a lot faster than trying to constantly update the kernel inside the VM. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Okay, Josh says, I work at a small company, about 500-ish people, <laughs> and we recently started looking at vulnerability management. We were hit by a breach a few months back, and now that we are back in full production... We're looking at ways to check our managed workstations for patch updates, as well as unmanaged devices, such as our firewall equipment. What are your suggestions? My first suggestion is to review your earlier incidents and figure out whether patches actually would have fixed it or whether they were, you know, caused by humans doing things that humans shouldn't have. Yeah, I think one of the biggest thing is phishing training. Although don't be a dick about it, like some places like GoDaddy did with trying to 
tell people they're getting a cash bonus to make up for the pandemic or something. And it's actually a phishing scam or the training for the phishing scam. But, you know, getting the user education up so that they're not just going to open the virus when it comes attached to an email or in a, you know, an Excel with a macro or whatever. For the patch management, it mostly comes down to some kind of inventory system to know what machines you have and what they're running. You didn't say what operating system, but I'm going to assume Windows probably. And I think there's some Active Directory stuff for that where you basically enforce the updates out and make sure that the machines are updated or or get a list of the ones that aren't and so on. Well, not so much the listing the ones that aren't if you're just talking about what's built in. Uh, With group policy, you can certainly uh, mandate updates for everybody's machines assuming you haven't allowed them administrator privileges at least. Um, and you can push new GPOs to, you know, refresh settings, even if somebody does change them. But that's not going to tell you what each machine is running. For something like that, you're going to need, <laughs> this is not a recommendation, but you're going to need something like, for example, solar winds that uh, <laughs> will actually, <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's one of the big selling points behind solar winds is it gives you this, you know, single pane of glass interface that you can look at things like, you know, do all of my workstations have all of their updates? Now, the degree of value that has is a little bit more questionable. I personally feel like it sounds like maybe Josh is looking a little too hard at the wrong things and could be using some of that energy more productively. The things that I would be looking at, uh, beyond what Alan already said about user training, I would be making certain that my network was properly segmented so that I didn't have all 500 people in the company, you know, with equal right access to the S drive or whatever, so that any one of those 500 people gets ransomware and the whole company is wheels up. And a 500-person company, you've got enough separation of duties and departments that you should be able to, you know, distribute all this stuff and have, you know, people from accounting don't have access to, you know, what people in engineering, transportation, whatever your departments are, segment that stuff, limit the impact, make it harder on an attacker so that when they do get a foothold, it's a lot more difficult to get further with it. It's probably going to be a lot better for you to look really hard at all those things and make sure you set up your network infrastructure and design as protected and multi-layered as is feasible. And it's all well thought through and well implemented. As far as updates, I mean, set the policy to require updates, maybe have, you know, a local WSUS server and just kind of call it a day from there. Honestly, I don't think you get that much out of obsessing over like those Windows updates if you already have the policy that they're all supposed to be automatically applied as soon as they come down the pipe. Yeah, like in general, these machines are not going to be hanging out naked on the internet. And so the patches aren't going to make that big of it. Like in order to exploit the vulnerability, they're going to need some form of access first. So like with any kind of kill chain, if you can break any of the links, uh, you can stop the attack. And so you want the updates applied but you also defense in depth. If there's other things you can do to interrupt the the, the attack chain, then you do those. Uh, and yeah, I wouldn't, instead of going deeper and deeper into how to be absolutely sure there's not one machine that's not updated, focusing on what other things you can do to stop people from being able to get to a machine to take advantage of the fact that one of the patches is missing. Yeah, and before we move on from this, uh, just to make it clear, because this is kind of out of character for me and Alan both, you know, we're basically saying like, ah, that part of security is not as important. At least it sounds like that. So I want to make sure we all understand why we're saying this about this specific topic. 
What applying Windows updates on a regular basis does the most to protect you from is local privilege exploit vulnerabilities. Because we're talking about machines that are going to be protected on a local area network behind a firewall, they're not exposed to the internet. The big thing that you get out of Windows updates is not, oh, this machine can't, you know, reach out and nail me with a remote code execution. It's more, okay, so I clicked the shiny link and I ran the bad thing, but the bad thing now can't escalate and get administrator access. That's usually the biggest thing that it does because if all the bad thing wants to do is operate using your user's privileges, well, your user actually clicked the thing. There's not really a way that Windows updates can prevent an attack from having your user's privileges when what it's really compromised is your user convincing them to click on something that they shouldn't have. Once you understand that, you have to remember that again, you know, now we're into that topic of like, well, what can your user do? And usually the answer is your user with their own permissions only already can probably cripple an entire department of people, if not the company. The most obvious and easy to talk about example is ransomware that just immediately encrypts everything that user can write to that does not require any kind of, you know, privilege escalation exploit. In fact, Privilege escalation exploits would get in the way of malware because if you pop an exploit and get local admin, well, guess what? Local admin has no privileges on the network shares. So the whole point, again, is that while it's certainly a great thing to prevent an attacker from being able to escalate to local admin, that's not usually what you're worried about in an environment like, how do I keep my 500-person network secure? What you're worried about there, again, is to one degree preventing the exploit from happening, which the most valuable thing you can do is train your users. And then, uh, you know, second, preventing what any one user compromise can lead to. Deal with limiting that amount of damage. And the last thing beyond that is technically not security at all, but the other most important thing is understand how to recover from these compromises when they happen. Which leads, you know, it leads us right back to Alan and me both ranting at you about snapshots and offsite replication. Exactly. Yeah. Because like we're saying, basically your security is a bunch of slices of Swiss cheese, but the holes don't all line up. And you just got (laughs) to, you know, (laughs) make sure as long as one along each plane, as long as one of the layers stops it, then you've broken the attack. And so, yes, you want the Windows updates, but it's not going to solve all the problems. And you want the user training, but it's not going to solve all the problems. And so you want to have the the isolation and the separation and the least privilege. And then even that, none of those is ever going to stop all of it. And so all you can do is, you know, you're better off trying to get to 80% or good enough on every one of those categories rather than spending a lot of time trying to get one of those categories from 80% to 95%. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.